Hello, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rose. We're going to cover a topic that many people, myself included, had never given a second thought about, the surgical stapler. But from the humblest skin staples to laparoscopic bowel anastomosis stapling, these little metal clips play an important role in surgery. And I want to thank Dr. Tyler Hughes for the idea, and Dr. Nakayama and the American College of Surgeons History of Surgery community for the help on material for the podcast. So let's get to it and meet some of the people that helped bring the stapler to the operating room in this episode of Legends of Surgery. So let's begin by defining surgical stapling. These are devices that place staples to replace suturing and are used to close skin wounds and connect or remove parts of the bowels or lungs. When a segment of bowel is removed surgically, the two ends have to be reconnected, like two ends of a pipe being brought together. The idea is that stapling is faster than sewing and can improve problems with connecting sections of bowel like stenosis, meaning narrowing of the lumen, and leakage of blood or bowel contents. Studies have shown that there is no significant difference in outcome between hand-sutured and stapled bowel connections, but stapling is much quicker. So in this podcast, we'll take a long look back at the evolution of the staple in surgery, from ancient techniques to the earliest attempts at stable devices from some Hungarian surgeons, to the Soviet advances and the American surgeon that brought the technology to the U.S. As you may recall from earlier podcasts, the jaws of large ants had been used in antiquity to close wounds, essentially stapling the wound closed. The ancient Greeks and Romans would sometimes use a safety pin-like device to close wounds called a fibula. In Latin it means a clasp or brooch, and was first used in English in 1706 CE to describe the smaller bone in the lower leg probably because the bone resembled the clasp of a safety pin. Now you know. The great Islamic medieval surgeon Al-Zarawi, see podcast 45, in his medical and surgical text, the Al-Tazrif, described using these ants to close intestinal lacerations or cuts. And in 1869, the chief physician to the French Navy, Laurent-Jean-Baptiste Beranger Faraud, described a way of closing these intestinal lacerations that is actually pretty ingenious. Two pieces of cork were embedded with pins, like a tiny bed of nails, and the pins were pushed through the wall of the bowel and into the other piece of cork, pulling the wound closed. But it wasn't until 1908 that something resembling modern staplers were invented. Dr. Humer Holt was a Hungarian surgeon who was professor and chief surgeon at the St. Rokas and St. Stephen's Hospitals in Budapest. If the St. Rokas name rings a bell, it's because it was the hospital that Dr. Semmelweis, see episode 3 on handwashing, had his final appointment. So Holt's idea was to create a stapling machine to replace having to hand-sew the divided organ with these three stated principles. To shorten the time of operation, to reliably close the stomach or bowel, and to avoid the contamination which might result from contact with the contents of the bowel leading to infection. Holt had his brother, an engineer, and an instrument maker named Victor Fisher, build him a prototype. They created a 3.5 kilogram, or just under 8 pounds, instrument that placed double rows of fine steel wire staples on each side of the opening which the surgeon would cut between. It used a hand crank, like a coffee grinder, to drive the staples, which was an improvement on his initial design which used a chain and sprocket like a bicycle. He first used this on a patient in 1908 who was undergoing a gastrectomy or removal of the stomach, and the patient survived. I'll try to find a picture of this early stapler for Twitter. It was heavy and cumbersome, difficult to clean and reload, and expensive all of which may explain why Holt only sold 50 of them. Now, Holt is considered the father of surgical stapling because of this invention, but a number of other people played important roles in getting us to today's modern staplers. The next innovator was Aladar Petz, another Hungarian surgeon. 
1920, at the age of 32, he came up with a greatly simplified version of the instrument, making it smaller and easier to use. After trialing it on dogs and cadavers, Petz first used it successfully on a young patient undergoing a gastric resection for an ulcer. He presented his new instrument on September 21, 1921, at the 8th Annual Meeting of the Hungarian Surgical Society of Budapest. After getting a patent in 1924 and getting a German company to produce it, the Von Petz stapler sold all over the world, truly introducing the concept of stapling to surgical practice. And here's an interesting tidbit. Petz's name has turned into a verb in German with the word Dirchgepetzen, which means something like to Petz through the stomach. Now, both Holt and Petz's models had one significant drawback. It could only be used once, after which it would have to be cleaned, reloaded, and sterilized before being used again. In 1934, Dr. H. Friedrich of Ulm, Germany, invented the replaceable preloaded cartridge, allowing the stapler to be fired multiple times during an operation. But it was in Soviet Russia where the development of the modern stapler really took off. And the story of how the instrument made its way out of the Soviet Union and into the Western world is an interesting one, so let's get to it. The Soviet Ministry of Health established the Scientific Research Institute for Experimental Surgical Apparatus and Instruments in the days after the Second World War. This came about due to the need to train surgeons to perform complex operations far from Moscow. The Institute started a systematic program of developing stapling devices for a number of applications, with the first series of staplers being produced in 1952. Now, one of the stapler types that the Soviets had great success with was the bronchial stapler, which was used to seal the branch of the airway to each lung called the bronchus. This made lung surgeries much more efficient. And in September of 1958, essentially by chance, American surgeon Dr. Mark M. Ravitch was able to get his hands on one of these bronchial staplers and bring it back to the United States, essentially launching an entire industry within surgery. But before we get into the details, let's meet Dr. Mark Ravitch. Born on September 12, 1910 in New York City, the only child of Russian intellectuals, Ravitch was raised in the Bronx and earned his medical degree at Johns Hopkins in 1934. He stayed on to study thoracic surgery and pediatrics and trained under Dr. Alfred Blaylock, see Podcast 32, developing a personal and professional relationship that lasted the rest of Blaylock's lifetime. Now, like so many of this generation, Ravitch was pulled into World War II, serving three years on the European front with the rank of Major. He directed a staff of surgeons at the 56th General Hospital, and during the Battle of the Bulge famously continuously operated for 72 hours straight. Upon his return from the war in 1946, Ravitch became the first director of Johns Hopkins Blood Bank. Now, around this time, he pioneered a non-operative way to treat intussusception in children by using barium enemas, which he published in the Journal of Pediatrics in 1950. All right, so let's take a second for some explanations. So intussusception is when part of the intestine folds into the section next to it, sort of like one of those collapsible telescopes, which leads to bowel obstruction. Now, I won't get into all the causes, but it is a medical emergency. And of course, I had to look up the word's origin. It comes from two Latin words, intus, meaning within, and susapere, meaning to take up. So to take up within. A bit of a stretch, but you see the idea. Now prior to this, the standard treatment was to operate, but Ravitch showed that using hydrostatic pressure under fluoroscopic control, meaning using a barium enema, and using x-rays during the procedure to monitor progress, the intussusception could be reversed without surgery, greatly improving both morbidity and mortality. Also in the late 1940s, Ravitch developed a surgery for pectus excavatum, a congenital abnormality giving the patient a funnel chest. 
The operation involved disconnecting the ribs to allow the sternum to reshape, which became the standard treatment for decades. He also wrote extensively on congenital diaphragmatic hernias, and this interest in surgeries for children led him to become an advocate for establishing pediatric surgery as a distinct specialty, and is still considered a founding father of it. But let's get to the main part of the story. So his colleague, Dr. Ivan Brown, invited Ravitch to go to Russia as part of a group sent by the National Research Council to learn more about the Soviet methods of blood transfusion and blood preservation technology. Now, Ravitch was uniquely qualified for this role, as he not only was a well-respected surgeon, he had started the blood bank at Johns Hopkins and spoke Russian, not to mention German and French as well. However, his Russian was badly accented and ungrammatical, and a number of sources quote his Russian-born father, saying that he spoke Russian, quote, like an Armenian, end quote. <gasps> Regardless, this would come in handy, as we shall see. Now, the trip turned out to be less fruitful than hoped, as the Soviet bureaucracy seemed hesitant to share information with their Western visitors. However, the hosts were at least courteous and asked if there was anything they wanted to see. A request was made to visit the Institute of Thoracic Surgery in Kiev. There they met the Surgeon-in-Chief Dr. N. M. Asimov, described by Ravitch as, quote, a slight little man with a full mouth of stainless steel capped teeth, end quote. Paints quite a picture. Anyways, Asimov wanted to take his guests to visit patients on the wards, but their handlers wouldn't allow it. So instead, Asimov had three patients brought to his office. The very first one had had a resection of the right upper lobe, meaning a portion of the lung removed, and in the x-ray, Ravitch could see a line of metal staples, each in the shape of the letter B. When he asked Asimov about this, the Russian surgeon told them that it was from a bronchial stapler, a device he claimed to have used over 200 times, typically for lung removals in patients with tuberculosis, without any difficulties. Asimov invited them to return the next day to watch him operate with the stapler, which they did. Now, Ravitch had had some experience and interest in staplers prior to the trip to Russia. Having been able to follow the Russian surgical literature, he knew of their advances in surgical stapling. As well, Ravitch was aware that the Von Pett stapler, remember that from earlier, was being used by Dr. Frank Leahy, the Boston surgeon who founded the Leahy Clinic for gastrectomies, or stomach removals, for ulcer disease. The stapler could insert a long line of staples across the stomach much faster than hand sewing and could be used in hard-to-reach places like under the ribs. Ravitch asked Blaylock for a Von Pett stapler but was refused, being told that it was too expensive. Ravitch had tried to experiment on his own with an office stapler but missed one of the key principles of stapling tissue, and that it is a two-step procedure. First, the stapler jaws close to compress the tissues and line them up, and then the staples are driven through while the tissue is held in place. So Ravitch was in Russia, spoke decent if not perfect Russian, and knew that they were successfully using a stapling device superior to anything else he'd ever seen. So the final piece of the puzzle was to get his hands on one. A few days later, the group of visiting American doctors were in Leningrad. While out to dinner one night, a young couple asked to join their table, as there were none available in the busy restaurant. During conversation, Ravitch mentioned surgical staplers, and the young man said that he knew of these, and that they were manufactured at the Red Guard factory right outside Leningrad. Now, by another stroke of luck, or coincidence, depending on what you believe, the group knew where to look for one. During their highly supervised shuttle in Leningrad between the conference and the hotel, they repeatedly passed a store that had a hand-painted sign, in Cyrillic, of course, the alphabet of the Russian language, that read, Surgical Instruments and Apparatus. So Ravitch and Ivan Brown, the Duke surgeon who'd invited him on the trip, took a cab to the store and were surprised to learn that they were able to buy an instrument with cash. Here's how the conversation was described. Is it for sale? 
Ravitch asked one of the clerks. Yes. Is it for sale for cash? Of course. Well, how much? 440 rubles. Could we buy right now? Naturally. We are foreigners. What of it? And so they bought the only instrument in stock that day, a bronchial stapler, which was 33 centimeters long, about a foot, and 640 grams, just over a pound, and was placed in a black velvet lined birchwood box along with 200 staples that had to be individually loaded. They took the device back to the Thoracic Institute in Moscow. The Russians were delighted that they'd been able to buy one and even checked the instrument and calibrated it for them. Returning to the U.S., Ravitch demonstrated the stapler to colleagues, yet received a cool reception despite a successful demonstration. The way surgeons cut and sewed had changed for centuries, so this was truly revolutionary. Of course, there was the typical resistance to change, with many surgeons protesting that they liked to sew, that they saw themselves as craftsmen, and didn't like the idea of being replaced by a device rather than seeing this as a new tool in their surgical armamentarium. Now, collaborating with Dr. Felician Steichen, the two of them experimented with the stapler on dogs in the lab, doing lung removals, and found it to be successful in sealing the bronchus, the air tube, and vessels, and was a great improvement over manual suturing. They eventually developed the instruments used today, the linear stapler, the linear cutter, and the circular stapler. Now, a number of manufacturers approached Ravitch but backed out, missing out on a great opportunity. They eventually teamed up with entrepreneur Mr. Leon Hirsch, who founded the U.S. Surgical Corporation, now Covidian Surgical Devices, in 1964 to manufacture their staplers under its Auto Suture brand. In 1977, Johnson & Johnson entered the market with their Ethicon brand. Now, amazingly, Ravitch did all of his consulting on product design free of charge, citing the inherent conflict of interest. Ravitch and Steichen developed a stapling course which was attended by hundreds of surgeons from all around the world, helping to introduce the stapling device into modern surgical practice. Dr. Ravitch, by the end of his career, had worked at Johns Hopkins, the University of Chicago, the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University, and his final stop, the University of Pittsburgh. He was named the official historian of the American Surgical Association, wrote A Century of Surgery, which covered the development of surgery in the U.S. from 1880 to 1980, and apparently had an extensive library on surgical history. This collection was donated by his family in 1992 to the Falk Library at the University of Pittsburgh. Apparently there is a room in the library dedicated to his collection. Dr. Ravitch died in Pittsburgh in 1989 at the age of 78 from prostate and colon cancer. Johns Hopkins named its first Mark M. Ravitch Chair of Surgery just a few months before his death. Now, though well-known in surgical circles, he is one of the less well-known legends of surgery, yet played an important role in many areas, including making surgical stapling a routine tool in operating rooms around the world. Now, today's surgical stapling is used both in open and laparoscopic cases. The laparoscopic versions can even be articulated, meaning it has a joint which allows it to bend for hard-to-reach locations, and can be used for bowel, lung, and blood vessels. And you've probably heard of stomach stapling for weight loss surgery. There are even some absorbable staples being developed, so no metal will be left in the patient. And stapling devices are starting to be used for other applications like liver resections and retrieving organs for transplant. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will return to the ongoing series, Better Know a Procedure, and the focus will be on Alan Old Father Whipple and his eponymous pancreatic surgery. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes, Leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. 
I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.